0: Well, good morning. So I still do martial arts classes, and I I deal with a bunch of 30-year-olds. I take a 45-year-old body any day of the week. I was with some guy the other day, and he goes, yeah, I just turned 34, and sometimes I'm so sore, I'm like, shut up. Oh, my gosh. Right? Um, It is so great to be with you. Uh, Last night, we talked about first and second things, I made the suggestion that your marriage is worship. doesn't need to be perfect, but it's meant to be worship. I like what St. Anne of the Cross said. The mere fact that you want to please God, pleases God. Uh, And so the fact that you want your marriage to be worship, even though maybe you're struggling, it's still worship to God and he receives it. But God does want us to fire on all cylinders. He does want us to flourish in our marriages, and that's going to require another first thing. That's going to require communication. So just very quickly, some books I have in the back. One is uh, Contentment, what the writer of Hebrews said, and I think that's God's common grace. I think a lot of times God is doing really powerful stuff for us, and we don't stop and recognize that every good gift is from Him, and we're always looking at other things. So I wrote this book uh, in the middle of a pandemic, and say, can we find the positives in the middle of a pandemic? So it's called Eyes to See, Finding God's Common Grace. This is the book we're gonna focus on today, this morning and tonight, it's called, I Beg to Differ, Navigating Difficult Conversations. Now, the good news is, I think this works with normal conversations, but the hard conversations are really tricky. And I would never suggest to couples just try and talk it out without a game plan, because we've all had conversations that can kind of go south. It kind of reminds me of when we first moved to California. I have three boys, they're all basketball players. I was a wrestler. They're all basketball players. So I was gonna put a hoop up on my garage. Um, I don't know how to do any of that. Noreen is the mister Fixit of our marriage. It is amazing what this was. I was a theater major. Noreen was a business major. I was, she was pre-law, I was pre-unemployment. I mean, that's kind of our marriage right there. <laughs> So I want to put this hoop up on our garage. I don't know how to do that. I call my friend John Lundy. He's an annoying theologian because he's also a Renaissance man. So he loves to work with his hands and he loves the word. Just super annoying. So I call him. He comes over. He goes, grab your tools. Let's knock this out. Okay, well, there was the problem right there. All we had was Noreen's do-it-herself toolkit in which every tool had a lavender handle. I literally walk out, he looks at it, he said two things. One, you're not a man. (laughs) And then he said something I'll never forget. He said, we can't do that job with those tools. We can't put up a basketball hoop with that. So he went and got his power tools. That has always stayed with me. And when couples come to me and they say, we're struggling with bitterness, there's a lack of trust in our marriage, there's been infidelity, There is deep-rooted anger. We don't know what to do. Here's what I say. Show me your communication toolbox. Like, what do you have in the toolbox that's going to have you tackle the hard ones? And to be honest, over uh, the time that we've been speaking for Family Life, we have really inadequate communication toolboxes. So I would say don't have the really hard conversations unless you have the right tools. And here's the weird thing about tools is you gotta practice with them. So what I'm gonna do this morning is we're gonna have our philosophical talk. And then tonight we're gonna to have our practical talk. But the, but the tools won't work without the philosophical talk. And then tonight my wife's gonna join me. Noreen's awesome. Uh, we speak together all over the place. We're gonna do a Q and A time. There's nothing easier than fixing other people's marriages. So we're gonna do a Q and A time. We're gonna put a basket up here and you can submit your questions. Uh, What's that? Oh, it'll be in the back, a basket right in the back, and you can give us your questions. We will try to get to as many as possible. I'm gonna give a really short talk tonight based on the book, I beg to differ, from the book of Proverbs, how do you structure a really hard conversation so it doesn't go south? And the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about communication and the timing of what we say. But what we need to talk about right now is, how do you get a long-term healthy relationship? By the way, Christians aren't just interested everybody's interested in that. Now, when we talk about relationships, talk about God's common grace, the top marriage researcher alive today is not a Christian, but everybody uses his research. His name is John Gottman, uh, and this is John right here. Maybe it's just me. Uh, Can we go to the next slide? Okay, this is John Gottman right here. He's not a believer, but his research is impeccable. He changed how we forever viewed communication. Uh, John Gottman became famous in communication circles by saying, I can watch a couple argue for three minutes and predict in the 90th percentile if they'll get a divorce. Right now, listen. I could do that if one of the people had an axe in their hand. Right? I'd be like, "Okay, I think that's really bad. I think that's heading towards divorce." But he saw something in the communication, based on the study of 5,000 couples, that is later called the Four Horsemen of a relational apocalypse. Now we'll talk about that tonight. But this is what uh, got this is Gottman, a uh, world renowned for his work on marital stability. And Divorce Prediction, Dr. John Gottman has conducted 40 years of breakthrough research with thousands of couples. He's the author of over 200 published academic articles and the author of 40 books on this topic. Now, when Gottman says, here's the first thing about communication, we all stop and listen. When the best of the best says, here in his opinion is the secret of communication, we all need to just write that down. And if Gottman's right, that's via common grace, even though if he doesn't acknowledge it, that wisdom's coming from God. So this is what Gottman says. Next slide. Gottman says, human nature dictates that it is virtually impossible to accept advice from someone unless you feel that person understands you. So the bottom line rule is that before you ask your partner to change, you must make your partner feel that you are understanding. That's the key right there. Now, two parts to that. One, obviously Gottman wants you to understand your spouse or a family member or a person you're trying to share Christ with. That's hugely important. That is only half the equation. We'll add another gentleman, Carl Rogers, who is another non Christian, the great grace of God is he's informing even non Christians uh, of how human nature works. He says, he's the guy who coined the phrase empathy. He said, empathy's great, but if a person doesn't feel it, it won't do anything. So, one, we need to understand our spouses, do the really hard work, but we need to do it in a way that they feel understood. And that could be a real problem. How many of you know love languages? Okay, love languages, great book, it's a mess, right? It's a great book, but Noreen and I have different love languages. Noreen's love language is acts of service. I have begged her to get help, right? (laughs) Uh, Mine is words of affirmation, so think about this. We can be loving each other, and this is classic love languages. We're we're loving each other and think we're doing a really great job and the other person doesn't feel loved. What, you're speaking the wrong language. So we need to apply Philippians and put other people's needs above our own, so we have to try to understand a person in a way that they can receive it and feel understood. Make sense? That's my current book project right now. I'm writing a book called Engage One Another, and I think the basic way we're approaching each other, we're using a a model of communication called the transmission view, which is we just trade information with each other. News flash, it doesn't work today in the argument culture. Why? Because we don't trust each other's sources right we need a ritual view of communication which is the oldest view is how we commu- uh, create a bond with each other and something called sympathetic awareness that we'll talk about in a second okay next slide uh next slide <clears throat> so look at the scriptures proverbs 16 16 how much better to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver Now, what's more important in the long-term health of a relationship? Interesting question. Love or understanding? Long-term health of a relationship. Uh, Many people who study relationships would say understanding is more important for long-term health of a relationship than love. Take a look at what one psychologist says. Next slide. Mutual understanding is an essential element of any romantic bond between two people. While love is the powerful force that sparks the fire of romance, remember those days, oh my gosh, you talked to each other till 3 in the morning, and that just wasn't enough. You held hands across the dinner table. Oh my gosh, you complimented each other all the time. Oh, Oh, that was brilliant. Oh, my gosh, I know I'm actually having an off day, you know what I mean? Kind of a thing, right? So without doubt, love is incredible because it sparks the relationship. But all of us know what it's like to hit the five-year mark. All of us know what it's like to hit the 10-year mark, the 15-year mark, and you're like, what, what happened to the romance? What, what happened to the love, right? Well, understanding is a way to get it back is what these psychologists are saying. So to continue, mutual understanding is what keeps the fire burning. It creates a sustainable atmosphere, which ensures that the, long, that the relationship will be healthy, fulfilling, and long-standing. Okay, welcome to Hollywood. Fast beginnings, crazy romantic beginnings, and then it all kind of uh, peters out in the end. We want long-term happiness, so we're going to have to find a way of understanding each other. So here's my attempt of how do we foster understanding. It is one way to do it. It's not the ultimate way to do it. It's just one way that makes sense to me, and I want to use you as guinea pigs. Okay, next slide. So we're, we're talking more than just listening. Okay, now listening is incredibly important, but we need, we need to go a little bit deeper than just mere listening. Next slide. So I want to introduce you Um, well, obviously the importance of listening. I mean, all over the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 18, 13, New Living Translation, which I love, uh, spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. Poor Noreen, I was on the debate team in college and I did stand-up comedy. That's a really bad combination in a marital disagreement, right? Noreen will start to say something, I'll just jump in. I'll jump in and interrupt her. And Noreen's like, that's not even what I was talking about. And my response is, but if it was, (laughs) that would have been a good response. Look what Bonhoeffer says, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a wonderful book called Life Together about Christians living with each other. This is what he says. Christians have forgotten that the ministry of listening has been committed to them by him who is himself the great listener. And those and whose work they should share. We should listen with the ears of God that we may speak the word of God. Listening is absolutely paramount. We're gonna be introduced to something called perspective taking, which is a psychological term we use in communication theory, next slide. So what is perspective taking? Um, This comes from two um, cognitive researchers, uh, Hale and Delia. They describe perspective taking as a capacity to assume and maintain another person's perspective, uh, point of view. right? And today we don't do that in the argument culture. It's almost seen as betrayal to do it. Perspective taking is this. I don't necessarily agree with your political position, but I'm gonna assume it and see what it feels like. Like I'm gonna share your background and I, I wanna see it from your perspective, not from my perspective. So I want to step into your world, and I want to see what it's like to be a teenage son in the Milhoff family. What is it like to be a student of mine in my class? Are my classes too demanding? I assume the student's perspective. Now, I would argue from an evangelistic standpoint, this is what we need to do with non-Christians. Listen, um, to be the parent of a trans child, Right? If we just jump into the um, transmission view, we're just trading research with each other, right? But the ritual view doesn't get rid of the transmission view. It simply says, if I'm going to talk to a parent, right? And by the way, in the trans community, 40% suicide rates, attempted or actual. So if I'm going to talk to the parent of a trans child, I better see what life is like to be the parent of a child that has suicidal ideation. I need to feel that. I think that's supremely biblical, right? That's Jesus. That's the incarnation. Does God already know what it's like to be human? Absolutely he knows what it's like to be human. But when Jesus was incarnated, we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. In Hebrews, that word sympathy, in the Greek that means knowledge by way of common experience. So Jesus experienced what it's like to be tired, betrayed, hurt, and even in a weird way abandoned by God, right? On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we need to step back and see the world from the perspective of another person. My dad and I were not close. Uh, He was a factory worker. I was the first Milhoff to go to college. And we just didn't click. He didn't see the reason for college. and I didn't know what it was like to work in a factory. So I did my freshman year at Eastern Michigan University. I came back. My dad said, I'll pay for the first year. If you like it, you pay for everything else. So I got back. I liked it. And I, and I said, well, I want to go back He goes, I'll get you in at the factory. I said, OK, summer job. OK, guys, it was 430 in the morning, back breaking, dehumanizing work. Porn was everywhere. You could not walk into a bathroom without hardcore porn right there. The language, I, I was a wrestler. The language I heard was unbelievable. Uh, half the factory was tr- uh, had to be shut down in Detroit because it was a murder scene. Somebody had murdered a fellow factory worker. My dad went into the factory at 18. He did this his entire life until he had to retire from medical disability. So that one summer of working in the factory and seeing what my dad's life was like was for the first time softness entered into our relationship. I can't believe you did this your entire life. I couldn't do this for another summer, let alone my entire life. That's perspective taking. And we got to take time to do that, of course, with people inside the church, outside the church, and our spouses and our kids, of course. Next slide. Now, I think perspective-taking is everywhere in the scripture. We don't have time to go through the Old Testament, New Testament. Let me just give you the clearest expression of perspective-taking in the Bible, and I think it comes from Hebrews, right? The writer of Hebrews says this. You're to pray, as we mentioned even last night, for those who are in prison, but notice what the writer says, how to do it, right? I think this is brilliant. Remember those in prison as if you were there yourself, Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own body. Welcome to perspective taking. We got a chance to actually go to one of the the, um, cells that the Apostle Paul spent time in. We got a chance to actually be in that, that jail cell. I mean, how much more do you pray for people in prison when you actually walk in and see what a prison is like, especially in the ancient world. See, we want to avoid what Antonio Gramsci called the intellectual's error. That means I read about it, I know about it. So imagine me reading about factory life, right? There's a lot of things I could read about factory life. And, And so I could walk away and say, well, yeah, I read a book on factory life. I know what it's like to work in a factory. Oh my goodness, walk into that factory, you get a total different sense of what it's like to be a factory worker. So what we need to do with our spouses is we need to stop and say, if I believed what my spouse believed, if I grew up like my spouse grew up, how would I see life? Like what would be important to me as I'm seeing life through the eyes of my teenager, through the eyes of a non-Christian neighbor, through the eyes of a person from a different political party, of a different religion, we stop and we see the world through their perspective because that's going to give me compassion, understanding, as we begin to talk about very important things within the marriage. Next slide. Now, what are the benefits of this? Well, I think it helps us create empathy. Empathy is the ability of me to say, okay, but if that was my life, right? a student comes into my classroom and says, uh, Dr. Miloff, I come from a broken family. Okay, I don't come from a broken family, but I try to imagine what life was like for this student, right? Uh, That's empathy, my ability to project myself into your situation. It gives us a framework when approaching people who are really different from us. Like, why in the world is uh, being on time such a big deal for you? Like, why in the world do you have these values? Why are you a spender and why are you a saver? Like, not just understanding that's true of you, but what gave birth to those kind of personal habits and uh, convictions and things like that. Last, perspective taking changes the tone of a conversation. Listen, um, walking out of that factory, for the first time in my life, I said thank you to my dad. Had never said it. Right? So I'm with my dad, getting a little emotional, oh my gosh, and just said, Thanks for putting up with that hell. I mean, thanks. And he came home to a crappy marriage, right? But his generation stayed in the marriage, right? This generation they get they get divorced for for the kids. That generation stayed in a crappy marriage for the kids. And I just said thank you and he got emotional. Right? Perspective taking can really change the tone of the whole conversation. Next slide. Okay, how do we do this? So I'm going to play with a term called bricolage. Bricolage is this French term that says do it yourself. So bricolage is this idea that you grab raw material and you, you refabricate it. You put it in a different... Um, way of looking at things, but we're all grabbing things that are available to us. It's called bricolage. Uh, bricolage in inventions have a reputation for being experimental, people using everyday objects and materials to devise new immediate solutions. Usually they occur spontaneously outside of institutions and linear methodologies. Let me give you two examples real quick. Next slide. When Halloween comes, there's two ways of doing it. You can just plop down the money go to a store and you can get the Power Rangers, right? You can plop down the money and get something that has been pre-made and you don't even have to worry about it, right? Or next slide, you make your own costumes. I love this, they're s'mores, right? I'd I'd like to find out how they sold the kids on that, but they're s'mores. So you can be the Power Rangers and you go to Target, Walmart, or you can say, come on, we can do this. So like, what's around the house we can use to make a costume? That's bricolage. Bricolage is, I'm not just taking one philosophy and taking it A to Z. I'm kind of creating my own philosophy. Boy, that for sure applies to Christianity. We know the upcoming generation doesn't believe traditional Christianity. They're changing it. So I get students who love God, believe in heaven, do not believe in hell right? They love God and one day want to be in a traditional marriage. They don't believe gay marriage is wrong. It's bricolage, right? Uh, They believe Jesus is God, but he's not the only way to get to God, right? That's bricolage. I'm changing things and adopting things. Now, because I'm a martial artist, we get a great example from the life of Bruce Lee, right? So next slide. Bruce Lee uh, was trained in Kung Fu, classic Kung Fu, but when he came to the United States, next slide, he created Jit Kundo, Do, which is everything. Bruce Lee studied boxing, fencing, ballroom dancing, Kung Fu, karate, and he put it all together and he called it Jit Kundo. Do, and his very famous philosophy, the highest art is no art. Uh, the best form is to have no form. So I don't just do strict karate, I don't do strict Kung Fu, I made my own thing. That's bricolage. Most likely you're married to a person who has done bricolage. They didn't take everything their parents said. They took some things and discarded it or transformed it. And so now you're living with a person who's constantly taking things that are available to them in the past and the present, and they're creating a story of their life. One way to understand them is to talk to them, is to find out the history of how they continue to evolve. See, that's the problem of being married so long is we complete each other's sentences. And we think we're no longer morphing anymore, we're no longer changing anymore. No, 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 bricolage means we're all changing. All the time, we're hardening certain convictions, we're loosening up on other convictions. Listen to what Carl Rogers says. Oh, I'm sorry, go back, Martin Buber, go to the next one, my bad, next. Thank you. Martin Buber says this, I do not accept any absolute formulas for living. No preconceived code can see ahead to everything that can happen in a man's life. As we live, we grow and our beliefs change. They must change. So I think we should live with this constant discovery of each other. So in other words, we're all changing. And so I need to find out from my spouse and my kids, who are all Biola graduates, but but they're all going in different directions. I need to make sure I'm understanding the directions, not in a defensive way, but to understand why are you not necessarily buying our family values A to Z, and why are you making these interesting changes, right? Instead of being defensive, I need to say, help me understand your world, right? So what we're going to do is take a look at some of the common elements that people grab to make their life, okay? So very quickly, here we go, next. Uh, Raw materials that a person, everybody uses to kind of form this narrative of their life. Next. For sure, family of origin. This is attachment styles. Attachment theorists would say the first four years of your life, you learned how to attach to a person. You learned what love was, security, insane that it happens that young. Now, you don't have to stay with your attachment style, but that is the thing that you're working off of. That's the foundation. So we all need to know how we grew up with each other because we all grew up in different households, and we're not even aware necessarily of um, how our families shaped us. So Noreen comes from a great Irish family, it's awesome. I come from a pretty dysfunctional family. Pornography, verbal abuse, and even late physical abuse happen within their marriage. Noreen has always said, how did you escape your family? Later in life, I'm realizing I didn't escape. I just pushed things to the bottom. And now the older I get, the more I'm realizing I think there's some things I got kind of messed up on coming out of that family. And now it's discovery for me and of course discovery for Noreen um, as she's married to a person who came out of that background. Next slide. So imagine if you're Augustine. Imagine if you're Saint Augustine growing up with a godly mother. Like in the confessions, he actually talks about his relationship with his mom. So he says, I heard the same words again and again and learned what they signified. So legend has it that Monica and Augustine spent the year 386 in a secluded village in the mountains of northern Italy, where Monica's devotion and preaching finally convinced Augustine to accept baptism in the Christian church. How would you like to have one full year where your mom is preaching the word to you? How, How cool is that to grow up? Now, take a look at another family, the the family of uh, Olivia Wilde, right? Next slide. Right, so Olivia Wilde in Glamour magazine said this. Remember, she's um, engaged to uh, Jason Sedakis. They have a child, and this is her comment on family. We're engaged, but no specific plans yet. We just have to find the time to put it together. In many ways, a child is more of a commitment. We are fully committed and really happy as a family, and there's no definition of the normal family anymore. Kids today are growing up with so many different definitions of family. I guess what I'm saying is that I don't feel any pressure to do it, to get married, but I think it'd be really fun if we did. Woo! By the way, they're no longer together. They're no longer together. Read that last sentence. That's not a shock. I made, my, I made my students so mad at UNC Chapel Hill when I was teaching there doing my PhD, because um, Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt got married. And I said to my class, I'm betting you right now, I'm telling you right now, I'll take your money right now, let's do a bet. The marriage won't last five years. You're so negative, why are you so negative? Because I read, I read a thing in um, Rolling Stones magazine where Brad Pitt was interviewed and he said, yeah, this marriage thing, I don't know about death to us part, we're just going to see where it takes us. <laughs> yeah, I know where it's going to take you. I know where it's going to take you. And, and, Right? So what vision of marriage did you grow up in? Right? I grew up in a family, verbal abuse was always there. Like, we didn't even know it was verbal abuse until we saw how other families interacted. We're like, oh, you don't say that to each other? No, we don't say that. Why would we? Well, I don't know. That's That's just, okay, duly noted. Right? You know what I mean? Like, wow. To find out how your family of origin has impacted you is bricolage. What did you take from your family? What did you not take? Did your parents give you a good example or did you just do the inference and did the opposite of what your parents did? That, that's a great discussion. Next slide. Uh, we're not, we don't have time for this. It literally would change your life. We don't have time for it. Next slide. <laughs> okay, Commun- <laughs> community, <laughs> community. So not necessarily your family, your family was part of a community. My goodness, I grew up in a family where uh, work was, what's a real job? You work with your hands, and you come home tired. So I said to my dad, I think I'm going to go to college. He's like, what? Why? I said, well, I think I want to do, he said, okay, what are you going to study? Theater. (laughs) So I love what George Herbert Mead said. What is a community? The ability to use symbols that have common social meaning." which means I can talk in the way that my community talks, and they recognize me as being part of their community. What did that mean for you? That mean me growing up on a football team, wrestling team, swearing like a madman. You want to prove that you're a man, and our coaches could peel the paint off walls. And one time it just slipped. My mom asked me to take the trash out, and I just said, no blankety way. My mom made me eat a half bar of soap. I said, Mom, I think you're supposed to just rub it in my mouth. Eat it! (laughs) Oh my gosh, right? So imagine growing up in a community my wife grew up in. My wife is Irish. It is awesome. You know you're Irish when it's three in the morning, you're singing Danny Boy in Gaelic. That is Irish. Love her family. Her family is awesome. I literally hit the lottery. And by the way, I, I called her parents uh, recently, applying that happiness stuff. And I, just, I, I thanked them for being such awesome grandparents, awesome in-laws. I, I hit the lottery. But imagine growing up if you're Martin Luther King Jr. and having to write a letter from a Birmingham jail where his kids are not allowed to go to Funtown because of the color of their skin. And he sees the inferiority in their eyes when his wife isn't given any respect And his kids are seen as other and less than. I mean, what do you do if you grow up in that community? Next slide. See, we call this standpoint theory. It's a really cool theory that says, economically, where you grew up changes radically how you see the world. So there is not one America. We now know that. There are many different Americas, right? And one of my professors, Michael Eric Dyson, one of the top African-American intellectuals alive today, said, your American dream is my American nightmare. Now, before I become defensive on that, no, I'm going to sit with what Michael Eric Dyson said and said, imagine that I live in a nightmare of racial injustice. Right? Now, the transmission views, you immediately step in, you say, no, 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 no to systemic racism, no to critical race theory, no, 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 no. That's the transmission view, and we know what that looks like. Welcome to the argument culture. But I first sit with Michael Eric Dyson as a white male, Um, working on his PhD, talked about privilege, and I said, but what if I grew up in the neighborhoods he grew up, right? And I sit with that. Not that I can't later disagree with anybody, but I I first sit and read the people he suggested, and then he had us all go to impoverished neighborhoods. Said, you think they're doing Taekwondo? You think they're playing Little League? You You know what those kids do when they come home? They take care of their brothers and sisters because mom's got three jobs. And I just to sit in that, and you go, "Wow, right?" I think that's important for us to do neighbor love, the second great commandment. So that's what we need to understand, right? So, um, Michael Eric Dyson, "Your American Dream Is My Nightmare." Reverend James White on our podcast, the Winsome Conviction podcast, you can get the card in the back. Uh, he's one of the top African American leaders in North Carolina. He said this: "Red lighting, systemic racism, flesh-colored band-aids are my reality, Tim, not your reality." Instead of me getting defensive, I just sit and say, James, I I didn't experience that America. I really didn't. And 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 to describe, you can listen to the podcast. We got it archived. It it was three episodes. Absolutely changed our perspective, me and my white PhD uh, co-host. We feel the pain. and, And this is what he said. I'm going to say one controversial thing maybe we never come back to Hume. So we got on the topic of Black Lives Matter. Flashpoint topic. Here's what James said that I'll never forget about Black Lives Matter, right? He said this. He goes, the first thing you say about this movement is this Marxist. He said, that's like, and I'll never forget this, running up to a a, a car accident, popping your head in the window and saying, see, you should have worn seatbelts. Oh my gosh, that was a dry... Now I don't know what I think about Black Lives Matter. Okay, I'm not here to talk about a pro or con, but that moment of saying the first reaction I have against your position is negative, especially when there's so much pain attached to it. Wow, we need to change our first responses. Remember what John Gottman says: the first minute of your conversation sets the tone for the entire conversation. So think long and hard about how you start that conversation, because you're going to adopt the tone for the rest of the conversation, and you're probably going to be sleeping on the couch. Okay, yes. Here we go. Next slide. Experiences. Uh, So on our podcast, we had Isaac Adams. He wrote a very interesting book on talking about race, and he's now a pastor in Birmingham, but it's his mom's response when he told his mom he's going to Birmingham this is a literal quote from our podcast when i told my mom i was going to be a pastor in a church in birmingham alabama she recoiled in horror oh isaac i told the lord i would never set foot in that city after what they did to those four little girls to her birmingham is still bombingham due to the tragic 1963 bomb blast at the 16th street baptist church she's old enough to have been one of those little girls right So I say something, and I wonder why I get such a reaction from my spouse? Wow, because that's not my field of reference, right? So look at my life real quick. Uh, Change it, next slide. Okay, my house, we didn't have any money. My parents wonderfully hid it from all of us. We had no money growing up in East Detroit. How do I know that? Every school pick, we we all got glasses really early on, and we wrestled like idiots, me and my three brothers, we were out of control. class picture i had duct tape on the side of my glasses my glasses were crooked i'm like mom how how could you let me get a school picture with those crappy she goes tim we didn't have any money We, we didn't go get your glasses fixed we didn't have money to do that our shower broke In our house, me heading into high school, high school football, we didn't have a shower the entire four years in high school because my dad didn't know how to fix it, and we didn't have money to fix it. I'd come home and have to take a bath. So today, I take showers to think, and if anything breaks in our house, I immediately want to pay money to fix it. Why? Because it reminds me of my past. Noreen wants to fix it, and I'm like, I don't even want to live with it. I I want to get this thing fixed. Right, look at that toy gun. One of the most amazing memories I have of my dad is we walk into Kmart, and uh, we, didn't, we didn't have much money, and there was three toy guns on sale. And, and again, we didn't have any money. My dad said, hey, why don't each one of you get, get one of those toy guns? We were like, Dad, you're awesome. Well, we go up to the cash register. He has misread the for sale sign. And, and these were full price. No way. He couldn't buy one. So he looked at us and said, boy, he's got to put the, put the guns back. We're like, what? You said, I mean, all that guilt trip stuff. He said, listen to me, put those guns back. And, we, and we're all mad at dad driving home. Like, you said we could get a, I had no idea. It's because, I mean, think of how embarrassed he was. So you know what was really cool? He came home from the factory. He had taken wood and had carved wooden guns and later gave them to us and said, Here, here's your, and again, idiot kids, dad. What the heck is this? Right? But man, now you think back and you go, my dad felt every inch of that. Then my grades, man. I, I'm crazy about grades with my kids. I graduated with 198 from high school. I played three sports. Three, I, I didn't know anything about grades. I didn't care. My parents didn't care. And I didn't want to go home. Last place I wanted to do was go home. As soon as football ended, the next day I'm in wrestling practice. As soon as wrestling ended, I was in tennis practice because I didn't want to go home. So now, today, uh, when people critique my books, because again, I didn't know how to write. I learned how to write in grad school. I did not know how to write. So when somebody critiques my writing, uh, I get defensive. And you might think, well, dude, don't be an author. You could be an author, people get critiqued. (laughs) I'm like, okay, fair enough. But understand why I have a little bit of a tripwire. And to understand that, you're like, Oh, wow. Okay, I'm still going to critique your book because I get paid to do that. But I'm going to be, you know what I mean? I'm going to put it in context. Does that make sense? That's the kind of thing I think we need to start doing with each other is understand. We're pretty complex people and I don't even know why I react to things the way I react sometimes. I really don't fully understand that. Next slide. Influencers. Who are the biggest influencers in your life? Like, who really has changed your thinking about sex, finances, politics, race? I mean, if you had to make a list, who are you listening to? Who are the big ones? I love Tim Keller, what a brilliant writer. When he wrote the book, Reason for God, he says this in the introduction of the book. He says this, C.S. Lewis's words appear in nearly every chapter, and they do. It would be wrong to admit how much of what I think about faith, it, it would be wrong not to admit Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, words appear more seldom because he has contributed more to the underlying structure of what could be called my theology. Nevertheless, Lewis and Edwards agree and converge in this book in really surprising ways. I love that he said that. So when you sit down with your spouse, ask him questions like, who has influenced your thinking most about discipline, of how we discipline the kids? Who's changed your mind the most about money or our view of sexual intimacy? or our view of what does it mean to be a godly couple? Like, where did that come from, right? And who's defining that? I have a good friend of mine, Tim Downs, our friend, who said, who's in the room with you? Because every time you have a conversation with your spouse, there's another person in the room and they're whispering in your ear. It'd be good to identify the influencers. Next, really quick, (sighs) go, next, hinge moments. This comes from um, psychologists. So when we look at history, we really can break down history into what we call hinge moments. These are moments that change history forever, right? Next slide. Very quickly, we could take a look at civil rights, uh, the industrial age, women's right to vote, the Nuremberg trials, 9-11. My goodness, we could go on and on and on. These are moments that change human history. Your spouse has a history. There were hinge moments that changed your spouse's life forever. Uh, At age 13, we found my dad's pornography stash. We found it. He didn't know it. We found it. And poured over that stuff for a year, and he didn't know it. Hardcore porn. That's a hinge moment in my life. You've already heard about another one. Uh, That's meeting Michael Crane, coming from a non-Christian background. Here's a dude who preaches the gospel, and it changes my life. Right? What are the hinge moments? Um, Wanting to go do my master's. And walking into a bookstore, you have to take the GRE, it's a required examination, get into grad school. I literally would open the book and go to the math section and walk away with tears in my eyes because I had no idea how to do math or even really grammar. And i just walk away saying I'm too stupid to do school. It wasn't until Noreen sat me down and said, listen, we can do this, I'll coach you in math, which by the way sounds really romantic until you actually try it. Marines like, carry the one. <laughs> so what are the hinge moments in your life and the life of your spouse? What a great thing to find out. Next. Now, we're gonna end with this, narrative injury. Uh, this comes from a philosopher. I think this is brilliant. Those sudden, unplanned-for events, like illness, divorce, bereavement, war, disaster, that completely knock a life off of its trajectory listen some of you your life got knocked off the trajectory you had nothing to do with it but you had to care for an ailing parent you got that diagnosis of cancer we're we're walking to dear friend through cancer right now it's it's mind-numbing what radiation and chemo does to a human body and even though he's cancer-free he's a mess physically so your life got knocked off the trajectory and injury was done We do not simply lose parts of ourselves when these things happen. We lose the capacity to make sense of the parts that remain. So guess what? If you're disappointed with God, admit it. He already knows it. Philip Yancey said, you can be disappointed with God one or two ways. There can be a big thing, right? That absolutely you look at God and you're like, why did you not intervene? Did you know this was gonna happen? Were you powerful enough to stop it? You didn't. And somebody got hurt. Somebody died, right? Or, Yancey says, a thousand little things. I'm in the thousand little things camp when I talk about disappointment with God. So narrative injury. It'd be really important to know with your spouse or a coworker or a family member or an in-law, what were the narrative injury moments that you're negotiating that forever, forever changed your life? Right? We have to understand and identify those. Now, the reason I say all of this is when Gottman says two parts. One, I really do need to understand you, right? And we all frustrate each other like crazy sometimes. But I need to understand where you're coming from. And then second, most importantly to Gottman, I need to find a way that shows I'm trying to understand you in a way that you receive it. That you say, oh, you're speaking my love language. Right? So that's what we got to do. Now, all of that is pre-work. So some of you say, yeah, but my gosh, we need to talk about finances. We need to talk about bitterness. We need to talk about that, or this porn habit, or that, or this. And I'm saying, yes, you need to talk about it. But if you rush into it, it's going to go south. Nine out of 10 times, it's going to go south. And now you're set back even more, right? Because there's hurt, anger, uh, losing hope. So I think the pre-conversation, which is what I think all of this is, not directly talking about the issue, but getting the context of it, Gottman is saying is, man, that's it. If you want my number one piece of advice is don't rush into these conversations. I think Hume's a great place to do the pre-work. Now, maybe some of you have done a really good job of the pre-work, and that walk around the lake is going to be, hey, I think we probably need to talk about this right? Now, I'd have a game plan. If you don't, if you don't know how that conversation is going to proceed and the guardrails on that conversation, I would say do not have that conversation. Now, listen, uh, I beg to differ is one way to organize it. There's a million books out there how to organize it. This is my one way based on the book of Proverbs. But if you, if you could not articulate a plan to me, I would say, don't have a conversation. It'd be like you said to me, I'm disciplining my child. I'm ticked. That that was wrong. I'd be like, hey, awesome. Yeah, we should discipline our kids. By the way, what's your philosophy of discipline? I don't know. I'm ticked. I'd say, okay, whoa, okay. I've never written a marriage book, never been asked. Uh, But let me just say this. I wouldn't walk up in that room without a philosophy. Right? So so let's back off a little bit. You're hurt. You're angry. But what's your philosophy of discipline? And how are you actually going to enact the philosophy? Okay? So, let me pray for you. Um, I think this is a great environment, but don't rush the process. Right? God, let, Entrust the process to God. Now, some of you are at a great place. Go have that conversation. Right? You're in a great place. Some of you are like, man, I know we need to talk about it. I think this is going to go badly. I would not have the conversation. Right? I, I, I would work on the priest off. And to me, this is one way, bricolage is one way of doing it. Okay, let me pray for us. Lord, we come before you, and we admit we are a work in progress, and we live in a culture that has done us no favors when it comes to marriage or conflict. So, Lord, we come before you. We know our marriages are worship, and yet we are flawed. I pray for each person in this room. First step that we would come before you and say, Lord, look at my heart. What are the things I need to work on And then Father, as the book of Philippians says, we'd put other people's interests above our own. And we'd seek out that spouse. And we'd say, I I think I need more context. I need to hear more of the backstory." And that we'd give the person the time and attention that they can explain. And we think what the proverb says, the thoughts of a person are deep waters. I pray that we'd be the ones who would surface it. Father, the great thing is we don't do this alone. We know your spirit's working in the heart of every single person in this room right now. I pray that we'd be receptive to that. So Lord, we love Hume. Thank you for creating this environment. But let us proceed wisely. thinking what the book of Proverbs says. A word spoken in the right circumstances is considered fine jewelry. Lord, give us a discernment. And if we're going to step forward, let us do so with understanding. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.